All right, good morning, welcome. Come on in. Please find a spot to sit, and if you're watching online, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you. My name's Mark Mullery, and um, I get to serve as one of the elders that works on staff here, and it's my privilege to bring the message this morning. Before I do that, just a, a note, I heard from a number of you this week that uh, you were receiving emails from a Pastor M. Mullery, and um, if you're receiving those asking how you are and asking for uh, you to email me back, um, don't do it because that isn't me. And it isn't that I don't want to know how you are or don't want you to email me, but that's actually not my email address. So as those who figured out, go back through the church email address. If you ever get a communication from anybody in the church and you're not sure if it's legit, go back through the, the RGC email addresses. So sorry about that. Somebody's been busy uh, fishing and spoofing and that's the world that we live in. So sorry for that. Um, speaking of uh, sometimes getting a picture of the ugliness of the world that we live in, the passage uh, that uh, we're looking at today is attractively titled, See How They Hate Jesus. And um, that's because that's really what's happening in this passage. We're in the, um, the, the, the last week of uh, Jesus's uh, life before his death on, on the cross, the week we often refer to as the Passion Week. If you were here last week, we saw sort of Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of, of that week, and we're continuing in that, that same uh, week with this uh, Sunday's passage. And Caitlin Darby is going to read the, the scripture for us this morning. So prepare your hearts uh, for God's word. Mark eleven twenty seven through twelve seventeen. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in this talk. 
And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. O God, our Father, we quiet our hearts now in your presence. We quiet our hearts now. You are speaking to us. These words are not empty words. These are your words. This is your voice to us. And we pray that you would remove the covering from our eyes. You would open the eyes of our hearts to see the one you call beloved, your son, Jesus. Oh, that you would give us a fresh view and vision of Jesus Christ and his kingdom that would leave us saying, this is marvelous. He is marvelous. You are marvelous. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work amongst us through my feeble efforts to preach this word. I pray that you would make our hearts alive with the glory of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom, that we might follow you with all our hearts. Pray. Amen. Sometimes people come to church hoping for something very practical, something's going on in your lives, and God's word always speaks to us in very specific and, and wise ways in, in the everyday corners of life, but sometimes it helps to, to, to get the higher view, and, and that's where we're going to start today. I just want to ask the 30,000-foot the question, where is God taking the world? Where is God taking the world? If God is ruling the universe, as we've been proclaiming, if God is ruling history and he's doing so in a purposeful way, if we're not in the hands of chance or fate or karma, if, if God is actually personally, intentionally ruling and leading things, where is he taking things? Wouldn't it be helpful to know where history is going, where your life as part of history is going? If we could know where God is taking the world it would help us make sense of everything that happens in our everyday lives. So where is God taking the world? If someone asked you that question, how would you answer? You know, there's a two-verse answer in today's passage. We're going to go there in just a second. But before we do, I want to tell you a story about a board. I brought a board with me. I like to make things out of wood. And sometimes when I go to my favorite home center, I need to buy Wood, and you may have done this or seen this happening. You go to the stack of the lumber and you got to start leafing through, right? You got to start picking through because not all boards are straight and it's really hard to work with boards that aren't straight. I don't know if you can see this, but if you're, if you're up close, can you see, is this board straight? So if you try to do something with this board and you put a straight board up against this, it's just not going to go well. So if I'm leafing through my favorite home center's pile of wood and I come across a board like this, I say, forget it. I can't use that piece of wood. I leave it there. I throw it over, off to the side. 
Now let me tell you a story about a stone that comes out of today's passage that connects with what I just told you about the board. In Psalm 118, there are two verses that are quoted word for word in our passage. And a few of the words are this, the stone the builders rejected. And we're going to just, just stay there for just a second. Picture the scene, the scene where Jesus is, is standing this week and, and having his ministry this week is Herod's temple. Here's a sort of a, a recreation of what, what it might have looked like. In the middle there, that, that tall building, that's the holy place, the holy of holies, where that curtain is, where only the, the high priest can go once a year to make atonement for sins. And, 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 and uh, all these buildings and, and everything that's there, what's it made out of? It's made out of stone. So Solomon's temple was built out of stones and then it was destroyed in an invasion and then Herod rebuilt the temple. And when they built it, there were many stones needed. And so imagine the scene where they're rebuilding the temple and the builders are looking at this, the, the, the stones and they're saying, use this one, can't use that one, use this one, can't use that one. And some of the thrones get, stones get thrown out. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is described as the stone that was rejected by the builders. Israel's leaders reject Jesus. They have no use for him. They hate him, as we'll see throughout this extended chapters, not only today's passage, but the ones to come as well. And eventually they will kill him. Just like I did with that board, they're going to say, throw him out. But there's a surprise ending. Because the stone the builders rejected, Psalm 118 goes on to say, Jesus quotes and Mark writes for us, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. There is a stunning reversal in this story. They rejected Jesus. They hated Jesus. They killed Jesus, but God. Don't you love it when we come to those phrases in the scriptures? But God raised him up and made him the cornerstone. The first stone laid down from which every other stone finds its orientation and location. Jesus is the cornerstone of what? Of a new building. What kind of building? A new temple. A new building made up of living stones like you and me. Where is God taking the world? These two verses tell us that through his son... Rejected by men, but beloved by God. God is building a new temple made up of millions of undeserving sinners, all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's where God's providential rule is taking history. Through his son, rejected by men, but beloved by God, God is building a new temple made up of millions of undeserving sinners and all this to the praise of his glorious grace. So we're going to see in today's passage how they hate Jesus. But then we're going to see how God will turn their hate for good 
by using Jesus' death into the event that opens the gates of salvation for all who will follow him. So we're going we're gonna to approach this passage a little differently. There are three sets to this, three parts to this, this passage. The scenes on either side are people challenging Jesus' authority. And then the story that Jesus tells, we just heard the story about the vineyard, that's in the middle. It's kind of like last week. We had a fig tree sandwich last week, right? Fig tree, temple fig tree. Well, this week we have challenging Jesus' story, challenging Jesus. But this week we're going to eat the meat first. Come to the bread second. Because the story that Jesus tells explains why they're challenging and hating Jesus on either side of the story. So we're going to start with the parable. So we're going to, first point, listen to a parable about how tenant farmers hate a beloved son. That's in chapter 12 here. Look at back in chapter 12, verse, verse 1. Let's just read the beginning again. And he began to speak to them in parables. This is Jesus speaking. He says, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, you need to know if you're standing there in the temple, as Jesus is telling this story, that when he starts this story that way, bells are going to ring in people's minds because they know there's a similar story in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, there's a song about a vineyard and its owner. And in Isaiah 5, this is a love song that God is singing over and about his vineyard. The vineyard are his people, the people of Israel. And he sings this song describing how he builds this vineyard and he, and he lovingly and, and attentively cares for it and, 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 and waters it and, and, and does everything that a, that a vineyard owner would need to do in order for it to produce good fruit. But try as he might, it never produces good fruit. It only produces bad fruit. So the result in Isaiah 5 is that this vineyard owner will tear down this vineyard. Because it refuses to produce good fruit. Now Jesus comes and tells this, this parable. So remember, that's going to be going on automatically in people's minds. They're going to be thinking about the story of the vineyard with God as its owner and Israel as the, as the vineyard. And so Jesus tells a kind of a similar story, but he's making a different point. He says this man plants this vineyard and he leases it out to these, these tenant farmers. And then he goes away. And then in verse 3... It says, when the, when the season, uh, verse 2, the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So it's harvest time. They've made a contract. They've, they've made an agreement. And at harvest time, the owner gets some of the produce and the tenants, uh, farmers, get, get some of the produce. So he sends his servant. And then verse 3, it says, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Wow. So they're violating their lease. They've lied about what they were going to do. And they're beating and sending away this servant empty-handed. And then he's, it says he sends many more servants. And some they beat and some they killed. If you've read the Old Testament, you're starting to figure out what's going on here. Who kept going to Israel over and over on God's behalf and, and never being received and sometimes being ignored and sometimes being beaten and sometimes being killed? Those were the prophets. And so then in verse 6, it says, He had still one other, a beloved son. Now, if you've been through the series in the Gospel of Matthew, that's going to ring a bell for you. 
Because back in chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens opened and the, the voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. And then at the transfiguration where Peter and James and John were there with Jesus, he says, to the, the voice comes this time about Jesus saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So we've been, hearing about, we've been hearing God communicate about his beloved son. And so now this owner of the vineyard has a beloved son in verse 6. Finally, he sent the beloved son to them saying, they will respect my son. What did they do? Those tenant farmers. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Greedy, covetous, envious, murderous, violent. So what will the owner do after they kill the son and throw him out? What will he do? He will come and destroy those tenants we read in verse 9. Parable. He's telling a story to explain something in reality. How do we understand this? How do we interpret it? In general, when you read a parable, the, the first sort of approach to interpreting it is to look for one main point. And most parables can be explained that way. Some, though, are more complex than that, and this is one of those. This parable actually is more allegorical. There are more reference from the story into reality than, than usual in parables. And so let's, let's walk our way through this. We hear, he hear a story about a man who has a vineyard. Who would that be? Who's the man with the vineyard? Well, that's, that's God. And what's the vineyard? Well, well that's, that's Israel. That's God's that's God people. And who are these servants that he, the man keeps sending to collect the payment, but the people won't listen and sometimes beat them and sometimes kill them? Well, those would have been God's representatives, God's spokesmen. Those would have been the prophets. And who would the beloved son be? Well, of course, we all know the Sunday school answer to that. The beloved son is Jesus, right? And who are these tenant farmers? This is vital. Who are these people who are in charge of the vineyard? Well, they're the people that are in charge of Israel. They're the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Herodians and the Pharisees, all of whom will come into view in the story before and the story after this story. And what will be the outcome? Well, the outcome is the vineyard hasn't produced fruit for the owner, and so he's going to come, and the, the, the tenant farmers will be destroyed, and the vineyard will be given to others. Why is Jesus telling this story to Israel's leaders standing there in the temple? He's using this story to explain what he just did yesterday. Today is Tuesday. In the, in the timeline that Mark is giving us, as best as we can tell, Monday was the day when Jesus went in and turned things over in the temple and cleared it out and rebuked them, saying, haven't you read that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And Jesus, if you were here for last week's message, if you are familiar with that passage, he used a fig tree to illustrate the judgment that he was bringing. He cursed a fig tree that looked good, didn't have any fruit on it. It withered and died. And he's using that as an illustration to show what he's doing in the temple. And the, the builders are getting the idea that he's speaking this word against him. In fact, 
At the end of our passage, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people because they figured out he's telling this parable against them. Jesus is saying judgment is coming to these. Think how many of the commandments these guys are, these tenant farmers are breaking. They're breaking the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother by, by just killing the, the, the son of the father. They're breaking the sixth commandment not to murder. They're breaking the eighth commandment not to steal. Uh, they're, they're breaking the um, ninth commandment not to bear false witness because they said they were going to give the fruit and, and they didn't. And they're breaking the tenth commandment not to covet because they're greedy. And th- these leaders standing there in the temple with Jesus, they get that Jesus is saying, that's you guys. Well, no wonder this isn't going over so well with them. When we come to parables, the other thing that we want to do is we want to look for the surprise ending. Not all of them have a surprise ending, but when there is a surprise ending, tune in because that's there for a very important reason. And does this parable have a surprise ending? It does. It has a stunning turn of events. Look at verse 10. He says that, The owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's saying that beloved son that the tenant farmers killed and threw out, he's not going to stay dead. He's the cornerstone of a whole new thing that God is doing. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's shifting the imagery from vineyard to building and specifically from building to temple. And he's quoting Psalm 118, which we heard from last week when Jesus comes into the city and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where do those words come from? Psalm 118. Where does the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Where does that come from? Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a song that they would sing going up into the temple. It's a psalm about a king who was resisted and opposed, but who trusted God and arrived at the temple to worship. Jesus is coming as that king and as that chosen cornerstone. Now they're standing there in this temple. And the temple was built by builders who assembled it stone by stone. Use this one here. Put that one over there. This one's going to fit down here. This one, nothing. It's not going to work. Throw it out. Get rid of it. And the leaders, see this in your mind. See if you can picture this. Jesus is standing there and Israel's leaders are looking at him and saying, we have no use for him. He doesn't fit with what we're doing. So get rid of him. Throw him out. He's a bother. He's a threat. We hate him and we're going to kill him as soon as we get a chance. And three days from when this conversation is taking place, three days later on Friday, they will kill him. Jesus will hang on a Roman cross And die, cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But he won't stay dead, will he? Because there's a twist to the end of this story. Because the rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. 
He will rise and become the cornerstone of what? What's God doing in the world? What is Jesus the founder of? The most important stone in this new temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ at the corner, the most important stone of all. These builders, Israel's leaders, they hate Jesus and they thought they could do away with him. And for 2,000 years, people have hated Jesus, been threatened by Christianity and thought they could do away with it. But it's still here because Christ is the cornerstone. God is gathering a new temple. And for just a quick self-righteousness check moment here, if you find yourself sitting here this morning thinking, oh, those bad builders, I'm sure I could have done better. Just slow down and consider, why was there a need for a temple in, a, in the first place? Here's why. Because we all, like sheep, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all need an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So back to the builders killing Jesus. In the greatest surprise ending of all time, God works. Can you see this? They hated Jesus and they killed him and they are fully and completely responsible for those actions. And yet in that event, there were two people acting. Two persons, if you will, acting. Because they were acting and God was acting as well. And God works through their sinful actions to bring about our ransom for sins to save sinners like you and me and to draw the nations in to gather around Jesus in a new temple filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Can we just slow down here? Is it marvelous in our eyes? Let this sink in. What they meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of the nations, to gather people like us into his kingdom. This is the Lord's doing. Is it marvelous in our eyes? Oh, what a great God we serve. I hope and pray that the stunning reversal that takes place here will sink into your heart in a way that will cause praise to erupt. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. The next verse in Psalm 118 is, this is the day the Lord has made, the day of salvation, the day of the great reversal. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Wherever you are in your journey today, may you find joy and gladness. May you be left marveling at the marvelous wisdom, saving power of our great God. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now let's turn to these two, to the bread, these two scenes that are on either side of this story, and we'll see the builders rejecting Jesus. What Jesus describes in the story is happening. So now we turn to scene one, Back in 11, chapter 11, verse 27, they're challenging Jesus' authority. It says, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking, Jesus, in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gives you the authority to do them? Now, these 
These three groups of people that were just identified, this is the, the ruling council of, of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And they're, they're asking, hey, what you did yesterday, clearing out the temple, rebuking us, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you oppose the temple ministry? And now Jesus knows this is not a friendly inquiry, right? These aren't humble seekers really trying to understand what happened. These are people who are mad at what he's done. And it, we, we saw last week, they feared the crowd, but they wanted to destroy him. But they didn't do anything yet because they didn't want to get in trouble with the crowd. These guys have actually been trying to kill Jesus for several years now. And so they come and ask him this question. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus employs a strategy here that he often uses. He, he answers their question with a question. You notice how often Jesus asks questions. Sometime read through the Gospel of Mark and just notice all the places where Jesus asks questions. I want you to behold the power of a good question. Jesus says, I'll ask you one question. And if you answer my question, I'll answer yours and tell you more about my authority. And so he says, John's baptism, where'd it come from? From heaven or from man? God sent or false prophet? This is very clever because either way they answer, it's going to be a lose, lose situation for them. If they say, well, it's from heaven, well, then the implication is, well, why didn't you believe John's message? Why didn't you receive him as a prophet? And why aren't you receiving the one that John said was coming after him who was greater, Jesus? Okay, that's not a good option. But if, if they say, well, from man, well, the crowd loves John. They held him to be a prophet. So then they're going to be in trouble with the crowd. So Jesus, by asking a perceptive question, he, can you see what he does? He exposes their hypocrisy and their idolatry. They hate Jesus, but they fear the crowd. And so now their sins are battling it out with each other, trying to figure out which one to do. And they're left with the fear of crowd winning for now. And so they admit they can't answer the question, which must have been enormously humiliating in front of the people that were there. Behold the power of a good question. Can we just pause here for a moment and, and ponder how important it is to have good questions when we're talking to people, especially people who aren't necessarily believers and maybe even people who aren't friendly to, to our, our, our understanding and views uh, of Christianity. I, one of the books that I've so benefited from over the years is called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. If you haven't read that, the link will go out uh, after the service in the email. You can come get uh, take a look at the book. It'll be up here afterwards. But he talks about how to answer questions with questions. And this, this book is filled with wonderful examples. And one of the stories that he tells is meeting with a philosophy professor. And there'd been a discussion about the problem of evil on a, on a college campus, a, a debate. And this professor was, was one of those in, involved. And he was a, a, a professed atheist. And um, so, so Randy wanted to just, just have a, a little dialogue with him and, and try to uh, uh, understand him a little better and, and help him to understand who Jesus was better. And so they had this conversation and, and Randy asked this guy a question. He says, okay, well, we've been talking about the problem of evil. As an atheist, what's your explanation for why terrible things happen? Just ask him a question. And he paused and finally said quietly, I don't have one. 
And Randy, who's from a Jewish background, explained that. And he said, look, I've got this Jewish background and, and it's extremely difficult for me as a Jewish person to reconcile all the terrible things that were done, the slaughter of six million people by the Nazis. How do you explain that as an atheist? And again, he had no answer for that. And Randy then began to say, you know, I can't explain everything about how evil works and where it comes from either, but I can explain some things. And they began to have a dialogue about that that, that brought them closer together as individuals, but also opened up some worldview possibilities, hopefully, for this professor. And he closes the section just by saying, answering a question with a question often has significant advantages over using direct answers. So let us learn from Jesus' example here. Even with hostile inquiries, sometimes a good question can be super helpful. And then scene two, they're seeking to trap Jesus, and so they send a second delegation, the Herodians and the Pharisees, to Jesus. This is like sending, these are two groups that hate each other. The Herodians are, are in, in league with Herod, the king who isn't ethnically even Jewish, and they're allied with Rome. And the Pharisees are the religious power, and they want to get these Romans out of here. So this is like trying to get the Republicans and the Democrats to agree to do something together. It almost never happens. But they do agree to do something together because they have a common enemy, Jesus. They all hate Jesus, and so they're uniting around that. And they come with some flattery and then a very difficult question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that's a lose-lose question because if Jesus says yes, well, then um, it, it, all the, the, the Jewish patriots are going to be mad. They considered paying this tax to be treasonous and there was a big revolt when the Romans instituted the payment of this tax and they despised having to pay this tax. So if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, we're going to get in trouble with the, the Jewish people. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, well, the Romans are in charge and they crucify people who, who promote sedition like that. So they thought they had Jesus. But what does he do? He says, you have, a, you have the coin? Show me the coin. And, and then he says, whose inscription and whose image is on the coin? Well, it was probably the image of Tiberius Caesar, the, 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 the current ruler, because it would have been the Caesar whose image was on there. And so he, with the coin, then gives this brilliant answer. And he says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar. His image is on the coin. So give back to him what belongs to him, but render to God what belongs to God. Where is God's image found? It's not on a coin, is it? What on earth is made in the image of God? Human beings, right? It's the first thing we learn in the book of Genesis. In his image, male and female, God made them. Can you see what he's saying here? He's saying, temporarily live under the authority of this Caesar, but now and for eternity, give yourself to this God who's made you. Augustine commenting on this in the fifth century said, we are God's coins. His image is on us. But you know, that image has been worn down on us because we're wayward coins. We've wandered from God's treasury. And you know what? The gospel is, the good news of Jesus, when you come to faith in Christ, the image of God begins to be re-stamped upon us. 
Every one of us is being remade into who we were intended to be by God. And we're being remade into the image of Christ. And so we render to God what is God. We give ourselves wholeheartedly to God. So here we see Jesus tell a story about how these tenant farmers would reject the owner and kill his son, but how the owner would turn things around and out of it, the stone the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. What does it all mean? What do we do with all of this? Well, just a few thoughts for moving forward, for taking this into our week. In the leader's rejection of Jesus, can we see a few things? Maybe work on this list on your own. But one thing we can see is, wow, the danger of living by the fear of the crowd, right? These people, instead of living by truth, instead of worshiping God on his terms, they lived by fear of the crowd. Can you see from the leader's rejection of Jesus that exactly what God predicted in Psalm 118 comes to pass? The builders were rejecting the stone, but God was making it into the cornerstone. Oh, beloved, trust in God's word. It's always straight and true, reliable and dependable. And can we see the human condition? These builders were rejecting Jesus because he was a threat to them. Do you know why any human being rejects God? Because he's a threat to what we really desire and want and love. And so repentance means rejecting and turning away from our disordered desires and loves and making him our first love and our neighbor our second. As God makes Jesus the cornerstone, what do we see there? Can we see that as God is pronouncing his judgment on Israel's leaders, he's making a way for a new temple and a new leadership built on Christ and the apostles? And can we see that we as living stones have been added to that building because that's what God is doing in the world? Isn't it marvelous that we're connected with all that God is doing here? And that we then get to go into our city as ambassadors this week of this good news for wayward coins and lost stones. Can we hear, can you, can you see, can you grasp in these passages God's heart for the nations? The leader's failure in Israel was a missional failure. Instead of the temple being a light for the nations, they'd made it a, a place for trade and making money. But God wants the nations to come and worship. And that heart is what's being imparted to us as his followers. He's calling the nations to come join this temple. Can you see, I didn't read the, the very last words of this passage. It says, when Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, uh, to the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, it closes with these words, and they marveled at him. His opponents marveled at him. They didn't marvel unto worship. They just marveled and saying, wow, that, I don't know what to do with that. Can you see the wisdom of God is so enormous that even his opponents would marvel at how gloriously wise he is. And can we see that God's providential power, hear this, how far does God's control extend in our world? How far does it go? Does it extend even over the sinful decisions of wayward people? Does it? Yes, it does. 
Because what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because when they rejected the Son, God used their rejection of the Son to bring about the greatest good ever. So when you encounter evil, when you are sinned against, when you experience pushback from the culture, fear not, beloved. God's providential control reaches from eternity to eternity, from age to age. And he is causing for you, his beloved, all things to work together for good. He is conforming you into the image of Christ. And his purposes in the world cannot fail. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that good to know? Isn't there rest in that place? Imagine being the recipients of this letter. They were probably living in Rome in the 60s where both Peter and Paul would be martyred. They were experiencing persecution from a Caesar just like the one that Jesus was looking at on that coin. They were in a hard place as Christians. But they could be confident just like we can that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and he's not done yet. And he's reaching through us to a lost world to bring more stones into his living temple. By what authority are you doing these things? Oh, beloved, let this sink in. By the unstoppable authority of the God who uses the murderous hatred of Israel's leaders to open the gates of salvation. That's how great 